0: Welcome, my name is Henry Lee and I'm on the faculty of the Harvard Kennedy School and welcome to the Future of Green uh, India, the Energy and Climate Challenge. Uh, uh, let me uh, quickly review the sponsors because I know that at the end we're going to be probably have so many questions and be compressed for time. Uh, this event is sponsored by the uh, Lakshmi, Lakshmi Uh, Middle Institute, which is part of the South Asia Institute at Harvard, uh, the Harvard University Center for the Environment, the Harvard Project on Climate Agreement, and the Environment and Natural Resource Program at the Belfer Center, and I'd also like to thank as a sponsor the Harvard uh, Global Institute. Uh, I think we have a very interesting program today. Uh, Let me try to begin with a few words on putting this uh, whole issue in context. India is the third largest energy consuming country in the world. Uh, Its consumption has more than doubled in 20 years, but yet 80% of this demand is met by coal, oil and biomass. The International Energy Agency in Paris claims uh, to meet its future projected growth, uh, India will need to add an electric power system the size of the EU's every 20 years. Um, Now, India has had some uh, very impressive uh, successes in the last few years. Uh, It's now hooked up to the national grid, uh, all the villages in India, uh, a uh, task that many people doubted when it was announced several years ago. And its solar PV uh, deployment program is one of the world's most ambitious. Yet many challenges remain. Uh, Energy poverty remains a major problem in India. Uh, water, especially in the eastern states, uh, has become a, a big problem, particularly with the droughts that uh, India, those states, experienced in the last few years. Uh, energy demand for road transportation is forecast to double by 2040, uh, which means, and among that forecast is 25 million more diesel trucks. And the temperatures of the summer. Uh, together with the uh, migration to cities of over 250 million people was going to dramatically increase the demand for air conditioning. Now, we've got a three excellent um, panelists here um, and uh, to talk about these issues. And let me introduce each of them and then turn, o- turn the program over to them uh, for their opening statements. Uh, Narashima Rao, is the associate professor at the Yale School of the Environment. He received his doctorate degree from Stanford. His research has examined the relationship between energy systems, human development, and climate change. Dr. Rao is a senior research scholar at YASA in Vienna and is an adjunct um, uh, at the uh, Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and Environment in Bangalore. Our next speaker uh, is Mahua uh, Acharya, uh, who leads the Convergence Energy Systems, which is part of the Energy Efficiency Service, which is part of the Indian Ministry of Power. Uh, She works on topics at the intersection of renewables, electric mobility, and climate change. And prior uh, to this job, she was Assistant uh, uh, Director General at the Global Green Growth Institute in Seoul, Korea. And finally, Abhishek Malhotra uh, is an assistant professor at the School of Public Policy at the Indian Institute of Technology in New Delhi. Uh, He received his doctorate from ETH in Zurich Uh, His research focuses on policy design for low carbon development and innovation in clean energy technologies. Um, And hopefully he will be part of the Belfer Center next year as a fellow here with us uh, on our program working on India and energy. With this, let me turn the program over to Dr.
1: Rao. Uh, Good morning and good evening, everyone. Uh, Thank you for the invitation to be here. This is a very crucial time, I think, in human history, actually, with the run up to the next climate negotiations and also the expectation that countries are going to um, be expected to ramp up their commitments to the Paris Agreement. And you've seen a lot of hype around that with country governments making promises. Uh, But there's also this uh, view of treating all countries alike despite vastly different capabilities and internal development challenges. So it's important to pay attention to the facts on the ground. So I have two themes I'd like to cover in these few minutes um, before we open up to a broader discussion. The first is I want to put into context the successes we've had in India and the challenges ahead for reducing emissions. And the second is to discuss some of the points of intersection of climate mitigation with uh, what I think are extremely important and lacking equitable development efforts within the country as well. I wanted to start and lay the context out using this very useful figure by the International Energy Agency in their recent report. It shows you the energy demand in India uh, by sector along these columns and showing you the fuels that are used in each of the sectors. Uh, Keep in mind that electricity is a fuel as an input at the end use level. So the coal used to produce electricity is not shown here. These are end uses. If we look at the overall big picture, The Indian energy sector contributes two-thirds of India's greenhouse gases, so about 2.5 billion tons, just under 2 tons per capita. But we need to also keep in mind that there's another billion tons or so of uh, carbon dioxide equivalents, methane and nitrous oxides, that are primarily from agriculture. And so the total of about 2.5 to 2.7 tons per capita is a little more than half the world average. It compares to about 16 tons per capita in the U.S., Most people are familiar with the electric sector and the remarkable growth that has taken place in renewables, as we see over here, uh, especially with solar and wind. And it's uh, interesting that about a quarter of the installed capacity in India right now, excluding hydro, is from renewables. This compares to in the US, about less than a quarter of the installed base, including a large share from hydro, is, uh, is from renewables. So there's a pretty remarkable growth. Uh, however, at the same time, you notice this black line showing that the share of renewables has stayed fairly constant for a while, and that's partly because coal capacity growth has matched renewables growth until very recently. But there has been a turnaround in the last few years where you have seen more uh, renewables being installed than coal. I would say, with regards to the future, the jury is still out because we're seeing, uh, you know, on the policy agenda, we see support policies for renewables as well as for making a... Uh, Coal mining potentially easier. So it's a little bit unclear into the future, uh, taking into account also the political economy of the coal sector. Uh, How will the carbon intensity of electricity production end up? But certainly the growth targets that have been set in the NDCs appear to be on track to be met. Let's look at the rest of the economy. So we have cement and steel, which is independently dependent on coal, aside from electricity. Uh, steel for coking, and cement just for heat production. And these are kind of the bedrock of development, and we have them growing at a very high growth rate. The fertilizer industry is heavily dependent on natural gas. um, In India, about half the calories are met by grains, and rice and wheat are very uh, fertilizer-heavy. We also have growths in consumer products, which are Basically, petrochemicals, not only plastics, but even clothing is increasingly polyester and nylon. And these are all sectors where we don't have ready decarbonization solutions. This is a challenge anywhere in the world, actually, and are particularly important in a developing economy. We're going to be talking a lot about transport. There's a lot of talk of electrification. We have to keep in mind that uh, more than two-thirds of the country right now use public transit and the growth in autom- automobiles, however, exceeds the growth in other sectors of the transport sector. And keep in mind that we have a lot of people who don't have access to motorized transport. Um, we have also high urbanization. We could be expecting that half the population in 2050 will be living in cities. And how we meet their travel needs will be absolutely critical for our emissions, as I'll talk about a little bit later. And finally, with air conditioning, um, We have, it's a luxury product today, but the growth rate is tremendous. Uh, We expect millions to be sold in the next decades, but at the same time, we also expect hundreds of millions to be exposed to heat stress and not be able to afford air conditioning. And we have to think about that as well. Finally, we have upwards of 800 million people who still use solid fuels for cooking, which kills about 1 million women and children a year. And some research we've done has shown that even moving all of them over to liquid petroleum gas, LPG, actually would be good for climate. It would reduce overall warming. And this is extremely important from a health perspective as well. So this is the big picture. And I think there's, we're going to talk about different uh, challenges for reducing emissions growth. But it's also important to understand that we need to think about what are the key development priorities in India to eradicate poverty. And so i want to just talk about that and throw that into the conversation we've done some research to look at what are the gaps in living standards in india and you see that the ranging across household amenities access to water and sanitation uh, nutrition in terms of iron intake having safe shelter with the potential need for air conditioning as well as having access to the you know for social well-being to the internet and devices to access the internet all of these are lacking far in excess of what we see as acute poverty uh, in in the World Bank's dollar per day measure. And so we wanted to ask if we wanted to eradicate poverty, uh, what would be the energy needs and where would be the most intensive areas we need to focus on? And this is a global study, but this is for South Asia. And you see the large blocks in the middle are India. And it's clearly that seen that mobility dominates the energy needs just for providing a basic living standard to everyone in India. And given that public transit has a much lower energy intensity than automobiles and even two-wheelers, it's really important that we think about ramping up public transit, not only buses, but even rail, uh, which is already uh, electric to a large extent, but could be even more. So we need to focus on public transit, especially in cities, Uh, there's significant co-benefits for air pollution, for congestion um, and and other benefits. So we really have to keep an eye on public transit. I've already mentioned clean cookstoves. Uh, In healthcare, we need to provide access to hospitals to everybody, uh, basic amenities in the home like refrigerators. I don't see many clear solutions there for significant uh, efficiency improvements other than just higher standards for appliances. But some of the other big areas that are important are construction materials. And we have seen that there's the potential to use uh, local materials, things like stabilized earth blocks to replace cement that can reduce energy use. They're cheaper um, and and they provide the same stability and service to people. So we have to think about uh, new construction practices scaling up across the country. We have about 50 million uh, units today that need to be upgraded or, or uh, you know made into qualities that are resilient to um, to the elements and, and, and to protect against diseases. Finally, I wanted to mention food security. Uh, currently, uh, people depend on grains, as I mentioned. And from research, we've shown the methane emissions from white rice are quite a significant contributor. And we can increase nutrition, things like iron, by moving to coarse grains and reduce methane emissions as well. And uh, from our research, we've shown that we can shift about 20% of production to coarse grains without reducing overall production. Uh, Sorry, 20% of land use to coarse grains without reducing overall production. Uh, Of course, people have to be willing to change over to these different diets. Uh, And that, of course, is a big challenge. So I'm gonna, um, so those are the overall areas I wanted to just bring up for, we can discuss that later. Uh, Overall, I'm quite optimistic. I think there are many opportunities here for um, dovetailing, climate policy, goals of climate mitigation, with the most fundamental needs of people in society. And I want to stress that transport, public transit, housing, efficient construction, and and diets are are areas that we need to focus on, in addition to the ones people talk about more generally uh, with regards to decarbonization. So I'll pass it on to my other panelists and look forward to discussion later. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Um... Uh, Mahua, you wanna go next?
1: Sure, sure,
2: thank you. Uh, Thank you, Henry. And again, thank you to Rob and his colleagues and all of you for having me on this panel. I don't have slides uh, and I deliberately chose not to use slides because I wanted to try and explain a little bit of a story uh, to the lay person. Renewals in India, and in a lot of places has now become so technical that I find that unless you tell the story, only the very technical people um, relate to it. When in fact, it's a reality. Um, the, the reality of injecting more renewables into the grids in India is now a difficult challenge. It's, it's, it was anyway a challenge and it's become more difficult. Let me put a little bit of a background to this. India has a target of 175 gigawatts by 2022. And this target was up to 450 gigawatts um, sometime after that in September, 2019, if my memory serves me right. And by all measures, India is on track to reach these targets. It will reach the 2022 target Soon, and it will probably over uh, surpass that target. So, in in climate parlance, uh, this nationally determined contribution, uh, India will probably be long on this, on the nationally determined, on the climate plan that was presented to Paris. What is happening in the country is that adding more renewables onto the grid is becoming a challenge. You'll hear in the media, that solar has hit an all-time low, record low prices, and in repeat terms, less than two rupees a, uh, a unit. And it has. Solar generation is at an all-time low as far as prices are concerned, for various reasons, various reasons. Uh, not all of which are technical, many of which are increasingly financial and certain level of market sentiment. But let's also remember that Coal is becoming just difficult to defend. Not only that it provides you what's called baseload power, meaning firm power. uh, It's just becoming also difficult to finance and difficult to defend. And then on the other side, you have solar. That's the cheapest source of power. By the time it enters the grid, in a lot of grids in the country, it's about three times that price. So you're selling, you're producing the price at two. Uh, You're producing solar too, by the time you're selling it to the grid, and by the time the grid ends up having to pay for it, it's three times that. It makes no sense at that point. A lot of utilities in the country do not want daytime power. Because for this one reason, that suddenly at about six o'clock in the evening when the sun goes down, your load drops. And then what do you do as a grid operator? You've got to switch on something else. Uh, at six in the evening, which is peak time, everybody's going home and got to, the load goes up. So many states in the country right now are switching on old coal plants. So not only does it negate the whole climate issue, but then suddenly, you are, as it is buying expensive power, and now you end up buying old coal power, which is also very expensive. So the answer to this is, lies in this technicality and a large body of technical uh, issues where grids have to increase their capacity. They have to augment their transformers. Uh, India perhaps will need a new market to optimize these resources. We'll need a market for what's called um, ancillary power. Like how do I, what do I use at 6 p.m. when the sun goes down and the wind is not blowing? Not everywhere does the wind blow in the evenings. In some states it does, and where it does, it's nice and smooth and it's fine. In others, it does not. So what do you do? You put on, switch, you put on coal, it you know, doesn't really, um, it doesn't sound so great. It's technically, of course, feasible. You use hydropower, you use what's called pumped hydro, you use the gradient from water falling from high up to down there, and you use that, and you say, okay, I'm gonna quickly produce some power supply at six in the evening. Um alternatively, you put in batteries that is the technically most technologically most super, technologically superior solution. The problem is battery prices are not yet at a point that they will compete with uh the price at which grids are paying for daytime power or for what's called infirm slash variable power this green power that's coming in. Now we have two choices: the country either one can sit tight and say, I'm going to wait until battery prices come down. And at some point it'll be competitive. On the other hand, I could perhaps make some interventions and what would those interventions be? Now this is the power sector, which is already 60% of the climate problem comes from the, from the energy sector. And then there's transportation for once. And after so many years in my career, for once there seems to be an answer, the climate answer, the transport problem. When we had the carbon trading business out there, it was so difficult to go car by car by car by car. You couldn't do it. Not even was it so difficult, it was just not possible. So well, there was no alternative to switch fuel. Ethanol only works in Brazil. So what are the options? Today there's, for once there's a technology and it's a promising technology. And for once, uh, after a long time, especially in India, and I live in Delhi, that pollution is, is, is you know, is becoming. it's becoming, of course it was a problem, but now that it's a stated governmental problem and the government says, I'm going to do something about it. So electric mobility is becoming an answer. Now, let's say there are very ambitious electric mobility targets in India, even if 30% of those targets were met, just a third. The amount of stress that would put on the grid is, again, you switch on your, you switch off your, car about six in the evening when you go back home from work. Otherwise, the same battery that is using, that is charging your vehicle could also be used to, to service the grid. Now, suddenly that battery has more than one revenue stream to it. In feasibility studies that I have been involved in the most recent last two, three months, we find that without any subsidy, with normal cost of capital on market terms, that if a battery were to service your car and service the grid, it would still produce power that is cheaper than what the grid in that particular grid, because all of this is customized, in that particular grid is cheaper than what the grid currently pays for buying power. So in other words, if we just expand the way our policy formation works, we would be able to make battery storage competitive, commercially competitive, no subsidy, Except that today our India's regulators, and I think it's not just India's regulators, in a number of other places. There is no regulation to capture these two different value streams. With a single battery, I've got a charge going on. With the same battery, I could perhaps be doing two different things for the grid. I could stabilize a piece of the grid. I could defer a certain capital investment. The two, three things I could do, and the value delivered to the grid can certainly fetch a different price for different values. We don't have that that regulation or that regulatory framework today. So in the absence of that, if I were to say, okay, on a a kilowatt hour basis, I could still come in cheaper. So, well, what's the, um, of course, India would meet its targets. But really the issue is now that solar is so cheap, now that we are finding ways to find, to do decentralized renewables, because land is a very difficult thing, to find large tracts of land in in a very densely populated country is very difficult. Suddenly there is this possibility to just expand the way our policies work. And suddenly there could well actually be a possibility, well, you know, the real challenge in front of us is is the the grid, is no longer a technology push or a political push, it's just a very serious, issue, the grid is not able to absorb this much of renewables coming in. So I think our pro- our climate problem has reached a point where where I started by saying it's technical. Some of the terminologies in these power sector discussions are very easily go straight over, and I'm in many of them, they still go over my head. So can you imagine the disconnect with a climate policy person and the disconnect with somebody who's not necessarily have to get into the business of how many volts and you know, what's ancillary and what's not ancillary, that's really not the deal. So as far as climate policy is concerned, this is really the big, um, the big challenge. I think these are the, this is the biggest impediment in front. And unless India addresses this, which it is, but it's addressing it in patches, but unless it addresses this head on, this will be the single largest limiting factor.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, that was both uh, excellent and provocative. Uh, i gonna writing all these questions for you for when we have the discussion. Abhishek?
3: Thank you, Henry. I will share my screen. And in the meantime, I'd just like to thank you again for the opportunity uh, to present it, <coughs> present here today. Um, I'm going to talk uh, about something slightly different. So uh, we do, talk a lot as a country about deployment, about cost reductions and the barriers to cost reduction uh, and deployment, but uh, something that often gets missed out and as every, anybody uh, would say about their own research topic does not get enough, enough attention is um, innovation and industrial policy. So just to frame the issue, uh, innovation in low-carbon technologies has enabled a shift in how we see climate action. So as Narasimha and Mahua have already mentioned, there has been a tremendous uh, cost reduction in several low-carbon technologies, Solar PV being the poster boy for that, but also lithium-ion batteries, uh, LEDs. So there are several technologies uh, because of which the entire conversation around climate change mitigation has changed, where the narrative has changed uh, from away from, thinking of it as a burden and how that needs to be shared globally, but rather now as an opportunity. So there's a shift towards aligning climate with economic development. So exploiting the co-benefits as Narasimha highlighted, um, benefiting from the uh, low cost of these technologies, but also the opportunity to create industries and jobs around these new and emerging technologies. And particularly in India, Uh, It hasn't only been since Paris. India has been on this bandwagon since uh, quite a while before that. So uh, some of these examples that we've already talked about, uh, India came up with the National Solar Mission in 2010, which has been a big success in a lot of terms, in terms of deployment, in terms of meeting targets related to cost reductions. But one uh, policy goal that often gets... uh, left out but is now receiving some prominence is that uh, the National Solar Mission also aimed at setting up low-cost, uh, low high-quality solar manufacturing in the country, um, something that has not happened so far. Similarly for LEDs, it is a major success in terms of the scale and rapidity with which this technology has diffused in the country. But again, uh, innovation and manufacturing of this technology is something that uh, we still lack behind it. And uh, right now, the next big focus for the government seems to be uh, lithium-ion batteries and electric vehicles, uh, which is again, a tremendous opportunity. And uh, that is something that uh, we seem to be getting left behind on when it comes to manufacturing and innovation, but uh, there are some big questions that need to be addressed to avoid that. So what does this mean for India's low carbon development strategy? So I put together these graphs just for fun and also to place the issue more in context. So these three technologies that I just talked about, um, I just want to highlight two things from this slide. One, that the scale of deploying these, um, at which these technologies still need to deploy it is enormous. So solar PV still represents only 4% of the generation uh, in India's power mix. Um, But having said that, I don't want to uh, diminish the achievements where prices for solar PV have come down from around 15 to 17 rupees in 2011 to around 2 rupees now. And annually, we're deploying around 7 to 8 gigawatts. But um, the local manufacturing capacity is still just... Three gigawatts, and uh, the import bill of importing solar cells uh, in 2018 was around $267 million. So um, similarly for LEDs, we've seen tremendous increase in its market share uh, and the price has reduced from 310 rupees in 2014 to 38 rupees in 2016. But still the semiconductor wafers and chips are largely imported. And similarly for lithium-ion and batteries and electric vehicles, uh, the gray part is um, two-wheelers uh, in, with internal combustion engines, and the blue part is four-wheelers with internal combustion engines, and this is just in terms of numbers. And I promise that uh, I did put in electric vehicles in there, so they're a tiny share currently of uh, annual sales, uh, not even a percent yet. But this is a huge opportunity, particularly in two and three wheelers. Uh, but right now, the global um, manufacturing capacity is around 600 gigawatt hours for lithium-ion batteries, where India has uh, none at the moment domestically. So how can nations, not only India, but other nations looking to benefit not only from cost reduction and climate change mitigation and other Uh, co-benefits such as improved health uh, uh, due to improved air quality. um, How can they capture other economic co-benefits posed? uh, The opportunities are posed by these new and emerging industries in terms of localizing industries and creating jobs around them. So these are a lot of questions, and I apologize for that because there are no clear answers here, but uh, these are questions that need to be addressed, I believe. So how does one build institutions to organize for innovation in the energy sector? How does one go beyond the short-term political cycle that um, the executive and the legislature in the country usually is and plan for on a decadal scale in terms of how to roll out these technologies and how to invest in knowledge and uh, R&D and um, uh, commercialize um, innovative technologies in the longer term? how do we integrate different actors in the system that are required for innovation, all the way from R&D institutes, testing labs, building up uh, human resources through training, uh, having different sectoral ministries. What does this mean? Does it require an integrated framework for energy innovation policy in the country, uh, which sets up mechanisms to um, set up technology roadmaps and bring actors together and prioritise technologies and invest in them in the longer longer term, that is a question that is still to be addressed. Um, Another big question mark is over technological capabilities. So um, right now, there is not a systematic effort towards mapping technological capabilities that already exist in the country and how they fit with emerging technologies as well as where the gaps are. So in the longer term, do we want to focus on specific technologies or uh, do we want to focus on building up capabilities in related sectors? So for example, the chemical sector for lithium-ion batteries where it's a broader question related to capabilities related to um, advanced cell chemistries and material science. And how do we pick winners? How do we identify this fit between local capabilities and emerging technologies? And how do we invest scarce public resources in a smart way? Uh, That is something that uh, still we are quite early in terms of uh, thinking and uh, having the answers to. And um, questions such as what is the role of startups and incumbents? What is the role of large state-owned enterprises where the largest 10 maharatnas, the big state-owned enterprises in India, eight of them are in the oil and gas sector, so what is their future? How do we diversify away from these technologies and how do we have a managed phase out of these technologies? Are there complementary technologies and sectors where they can already diversify their technology and investment portfolios? And finally, how does India place itself in the larger context of uh, innovation that is happening internationally uh, in other countries and in global value chains? Uh, are there opportunities for collaboration in R D D? and d And often these collaborations are limited to uh, pre-commercial stages because as soon as there is uh, potential for commercialization, uh, countries tend to look at their own interests. But are there complementary capabilities in global value chains? For example, uh, as in the case of solar PV, um China scaled up manufacturing of uh, solar PV cells, but uh, a lot of the production equipment came from Germany. So similarly, if India plans to build battery packs, which are adapted for Indian climatic conditions for uh, electric two and three wheelers, as well as uh, passenger vehicles, uh, is there a potential to work with cell manufacturers that might be based in Japan or South Korea or increasingly now China um, and uh, have effective industrial partnerships to Um, adapt and localize some of these technologies. So these are some of the big questions that keep me occupied and some that uh, urgently need to be addressed so that uh, we can effectively answer them in the coming decades um, to make sure that uh, besides uh, preventing the negatives from uh, climate change mitigation, we also do not miss out on the positives. Um, And I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, Thank you uh, for uh, three uh, terrific presentations. Um, And uh, you've done a terrific job. We're still on time, which would not have happened if we had three Harvard faculty members. Um, And uh, you raised a lot of questions. I have a number of questions on the uh, whole area of the electric grid. But before I get into those, I want us to ask a broad question. Uh, the world uh, inclu- uh, all the countries in the world have been uh, mired in one of the worst pandemics um, in the last co- couple of hundred years. Uh, and this has hit India. Uh, and where do we stand now a year and a month? Uh, into the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of India's goals on energy and India's goals on uh, reducing poverty and India's development goals. where What is the state of India today? Uh, Narashima, you want to start with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it has been a devastating challenge. Uh, I think we don't even know the extent of the challenge today that is uh, in India. Um, just understanding the situation and how it differs in different places uh, itself is a challenge. Um, I think on the one hand, it's, uh, it's deepened the social crisis that we have and some of the um, important poverty alleviation uh, challenges. I think we have significant employment issues. Uh, the agricultural sector, as we know, has been hit really hard. And addressing those is now of primary importance, of course, in India. Uh, we've seen significant reductions in overall growth in the economy. And that may look like it's a good thing for emissions, but it's obviously just temporary. And um, I don't expect that it's going to put a dent in any significant way on the future growth. Uh, in fact, we hope that it would be restored to previous levels. I think um, there also because of the changes in employment and, and growth, it, it's put a uh, slight dampen. Uh, it's dampened the extent of the growth that has taken place in renewables as well. Um, so it's been a bit of a setback in both fronts. I don't think the uh, the overall goals have changed. I don't think there's any new, particularly new opportunities. I think this has just, um, uh, yeah, it's it's made all of the challenges both for climate mitigation and for poverty alleviation a little more stark. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say for now. It's not a very uh, optimistic story from my front, but but maybe my other panelists have some more specific views on the ground.
0: Um, before I turn to them, let me just say to the audience, you'll see on your uh, bottom of your screen, a Q&A uh, icon. And uh, if you have a question, just click on that and um, ask your question. Uh, does anybody else on the panel want to reply to the, what, uh, to add to um, what uh, Narashima has said? Um, uh, Mahua? Or I, I could go,
2: yeah, sure. Um, so the pandemic as far as the energy sector is concerned, let me try and limit it to the energy sector for now. Um, you will see in a lot of announcements or even if you were to look at the data, the energy demand has recovered. Pre-energy demand, energy demand pre-COVID is now back to, today's energy demand is back to pre-COVID levels. But if you were to split that data, which a lot of people don't necessarily do, and it's sometimes a little deceptive to say, uh, our energy demand has gone, is come back up, and so things are fine. In fact, if you were to look at that, you'll find that in some states, the states that have high agricultural load and high domestic load have gone up hugely. And states that have high commercial load and high industrial load have not gone up as much. And a lot of this is to do with the fact that in in, in in the coming year, I think the coming two years, agriculture agricultural productivity is expected to go up. 3.5% is the national number, maybe around 3.4, 3.5, whereas industrial and services is expected to contract by between nine and eight, eight and nine percent. That's what's going on. So there's this dichotomy, that single line does not reflect, um, is, is not enough of the, of the story. And all India power demand. There's a lot of announcements. All India power demand touched all time high. It's correct. It's absolutely correct. All India power demand is is back up again, but there's a decline in the in labour force uh, for sure because the service industry has been hit uh, very badly. This means that there's an increasing gap between the the rich and the poor, which is this is really the sad outcome of uh, one of the biggest outcomes of the of the pandemic. So underneath the energy numbers tells you a, a very different story. And I think one has to look underneath that to understand the socioeconomic story uh, that is still very much brewing in the country.
0: Abhishek, do you want to add anything?
3: I'd just like to add to what Mahua said, um, particularly in the power sector, on top of these disparities between different types of end consumption, Another effect of the pandemic has been to expose, and not that it wasn't common knowledge before, but to uh, further expose the weakest chain uh, link in the chain when it comes to the power sector, which is uh, power distribution. So India's uh, power distribution utilities have uh, perennially been, uh, a lot of them have been making losses, uh, primarily because um, of two reasons. One, tariffs are up for... Um, agricultural and rural customers mostly are set below cost recovery levels, and that is because electricity is seen as a a public good and is to be provided at an affordable price. Uh, But the challenge is when uh, the distribution utilities are not adequately um, subsidized to pay for these uh, below-cost recovery tariffs, which is often the case uh, because states um, either do not release the subsidies or are late in doing so. Um, So because these distribution utilities are perennially financially stressed, uh, that has knock-on effects for not only power generation but for the economy as a whole. So a vast quantity of non-performing assets uh, for banks are actually in the power sector. And uh, because of lower demand, for at least a few months, even though uh, demand has recovered now. Um, a lot of these funds are in pretty bad financial shape to the extent that uh, after only five years, I believe last time, 2015, was when uh, a relief package was announced for distribution utilities. Another one is in the pipeline. Um, so that is a bottleneck and a roadblock that is likely to impede uh, deployment of uh, renewables in the coming years if it is not addressed uh because the lack of creditworthiness of these uh of the distribution com- uh, utilities can be a big impediment to investment in power generation in the coming years and something that uh, probably doesn't need to be addressed relatively soon and uh because of the pandemic that's become amply more clear now
0: thank you um let me turn to what i think is sort of the gorilla in the room here, uh, which is the coal industry. Uh, you've got painted uh, all of you have painted a picture uh, of a, a world in which uh, of an India in which the air pollution is getting worse in the cities, uh, that demand or, or this uh, for solar, I think um, uh, Mahua has pointed out has plateaued a bit. Uh, You've got a situation in which the potential future demand for electricity um, is not only going to rise because of the increase in urbanization, the increase in demand for air conditioning, uh, but also uh, if you move to electric vehicles um, or if you move to electricity as a fuel for uh, substitute for oil in the steel industry or in other heavy industry, you're going to have a huge demand increase, even more than has been projected. Um, we, uh, Mahua, you pointed out that renewables don't work too well at six o'clock in the evening, um, and so I'm looking at all of this, and I'm, I'm uh, and I look at the goals, and I'm taking. I'm going to now plagiarize one of the questions that was asked here, but you know, if you look at India's um, thermal power generation sector, uh, emission control technology has been consistently delayed in that sector. Um, time and again over the last seven years. And according to CSC, uh, CSE report, 70% of India's coal-fired power plants won't meet the 2022 deadline. Uh, how are we going to, A, reduce the pollution from these facilities, and B, phase them out over time, given the enormous increase in demand and the uh, intermittency problem that is uh, pervades uh, solar energy, so I, I come away saying you've done a terrific job describing the challenges. Now I want you to help me find out what the solution is. so I'm going to start uh, with Mahua and then I'll go through all of three of you to see uh, to address this.
2: Sure, sure. So yes, Henry, uh, coal is um, it, it's a problem. It is, in fact, the gorilla in the room. Uh, You're absolutely right. Yes, I think there's about 22 coal plants that have not reached the goals that was put on them for desulfurization. And yes, it's absolutely right that those goals are a bit of a moving goalpost. And there has been a moving goalpost story for a while. Uh, The second point, which is a problem is there are a lot of old coal plants uh, out there that are still working. Uh, there are a lot of old coal plants that have been switched off, but not decommissioned. They haven't been switched on re. Uh, they've not been switched on again after the, the pandemic or since the pandemic. So they're sort of sitting idle. Um, there are a number of other coal plants that are on the decommissioning board but that decommissioning takes a bit of time. So all of this needs to be packaged together um, and something has to happen to them. The ones that need to be decommissioned, which is the economic theory for decommissioning would be if the cost of keeping that plant alive, which is the cost of what's called fixed power plus variable power, is less than the cost of, or is more than the cost of, uh, round the clock power. Then, really, the economic theory says that you should really stop that plant because it's 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 causing it's it's unnecessarily bleeding the distribution company dry. That is a problem. There's a number of those plants. Uh, the last discovered uh, tariff for uh, round the clock power was X. There's about there's there's quite a few plants uh, whose tariffs are who are in long term power purchase agreements and their tariff is higher than what it would cost to buy round the clock power, should a distribution company simply decide to just buy long-term, long-term power from someone who is able to synchronize wind and solar with the battery, for example. Um, That's one. There is some um, discussion, and it's still ongoing, on how to expedite this decommissioning. And very recently, which is, I think, as recent as last week, There is now new order. And there are many small, 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 small reforms that are taking place on a daily basis. Nothing massive because um, doing something largely massive with the coal sector runs into employment employment issues. It runs into this business of just transition. It's not necessarily the people working in the coal plant, but it's the people working in the mine that services that coal plant. And there's no answer to it. Uh, The largest coal mining company in the country gets uh, 20% of their mines generate 80% of their revenues. And I think about the majority of their underground mines are um, loss making. So, you know, there's this to transition a portfolio as big as that takes time. And there are a number of of issues that are not necessarily just social. What do you do with money? What do you do with the unions? What do you do with these long-term power purchase contracts? So the answer to the long-term power purchase contract has been relieved last week, where utilities now are allowed to get away from from stitched in contracts that are simply feeding these old coal plants whose plant load factors, meaning their efficiencies have come down to below the technical minimum that you have to keep these at. So it's really a, a bunch of questionable, there's a lot of questionable assets which I think the gov- I'm, I'm fairly sure the government is aware of. Uh, and there have been discussions about coal for solar kind of swaps, coal for renewables, something that would work like a cash for clunkers. You'd have to do a lot of work to synchronize the renewables and make sure it was actually that you were able to bring on board new renewables, et cetera, et cetera. But these are very large, large endeavors. Switching off coal plants is also not not an option now, technically not an option simply because of the 6 pm problem that i i raised so it's just there's it just such a large capacity there's a lot of there's a number of measures that need to be done over a period of time but it's I, as i would say everybody is aware of this uh, of this of this issue
0: you know one of the reasons i asked the question also is that i look at china which has made a uh, uh a number of statements about phasing down coal but at the same time has 200 coal plants now in the planning and construction level so it's, it's getting off of coal uh not just closing down what you have but not building any more of them seems to be a challenge there and i would say the same challenge or the same conditions that create the challenge are probably also going to, to uh, manifest themselves in india abhishek do you want to address this
3: um I'm by no means an expert on this, but uh, I would like to give credit to some excellent colleagues who have done great work on coal and thought about these questions for a decade. Uh, Rohit Chandra, who is an assistant professor at the School of Public Policy and who was uh, at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School, has been looking at coal. And uh, my thinking is informed a lot by his work. So, which seems to point towards the fact that although coal does not have a very positive future, it is not going anywhere uh, anytime soon. Uh, So already investments into coal plants uh, have been declining and are stagnating at the moment, which has partly to do with uh, stagnation in India's power demand. But um, in the near future, a big question is, uh, because India's coal sector is largely insulated from global pressures on uh, investment, Uh, because a lot of coal mines and coal infrastructure is financed by uh, state-owned banks and not by private investors who have their own pressures related to ESG requirements. Um, You see this public good rationale being played out, which Moa referred to this uh, job creation rationale when it comes to decisions related to either investment or phase-out of any kind of coal infrastructure. Um, So the big question is, how do we transition away from it in in a way that is, A, politically feasible, and B, socially just? Uh, We've seen from the farmers' protests recently how any shocks to the system will not be taken well, where if there is a threat to the livelihoods of millions of people, particularly in states in India's coal belt, where that forms the primary form of economic activity and there's not much else going on, There have to be ways to get out of that. Uh, We have to think about economic diversification. We have to think about uh, compensation. We have to think about reskilling, retooling, and uh, reemploying those people in other sectors of the economy. Um, So it's by no means going to be easy, but uh, thankfully, or not, it's going to be a slow process, which uh, gives us time to think about it, but also is not great if you want to do... uh, Went fast enough to phase out coal by um, the latter half of this century.
0: Narasimha?
1: Yeah, I mean, you've heard a lot already. I just add a couple more points. I think we should also pay attention to the importance of the coal industry for the government's finances. So, you know, um, I think a quarter of the tax revenues for the federal government, central government, comes from the coal, from energy, uh, from taxing coal as well as uh, petroleum products. And And so that's uh, and even if you if you include indirect so things like dividends from the coal from the companies that are public sector companies the overall revenues from the government also about 20 percent or so so this is a fiscal issue as well and even at the state level uh, and and the central level it's a geographically concentrated issue as well as Abhishek was pointing out there are certain states where you have greater dominance of employment as well as um, uh, financial dependence on the coal industry. So, yeah, it's not going anywhere. I completely agree with everything that's been said. You did ask about solutions, (laughs) so I might venture into talking about that a little bit. We have a tremendous amount of demand growth, right? So how can you meet that with renewables? I think one has to think about scale, and uh, the government, of course, is trying. I think the grid integration issues are paramount. Uh, The ability to provide some kind of smoothing in terms of matching so the supply with the demand through batteries storage uh, are incredibly critical, and the extent to which you can have technology transfer or arrangements to make those more uh, to accelerate their deployment in India, uh, I think is possible. I think I've seen model runs; these are of course idealistic, showing that one can one can manage with storage even in India for a pretty high percentage deployment of of solar and wind if they if they're managed and sited appropriately. But it's a lot of technical issues. Uh, but one has to think of scale. So more than rooftop solar, which is more expensive, harder to deploy, low density. If we can find ways to scale you know, high capacity wind and solar in, with grid integration, I think the transmission grid is up to that. Uh, it would be the direction to go. But it will be slow.
0: Thank you. Um, Abhishek, you talked a lot about trying to uh, uh, leverage the uh, growth in the industrial uh, manufacturing and in new technologies uh, in India. Let me uh, focus specifically on one technology, which is batteries. Um, And you said that uh, you had a 15 year plan that India would become a major producer of lithium batteries. Uh, And I guess um, a two part question, one right now, the dominant battery companies are in Japan, Korea, and possibly China. Um, And they've got about a five to six year lead uh, on India. Uh, One might argue, well, why doesn't one just buy batteries from those three countries? Because they're going to be cheaper and better quality for um, at least the next possibly uh, the decade. Um, And also there is a concern that Well, maybe lithium technology will eventually phase out to a new technology because there's a lot of work going on right now and there are a lot of different alternatives to lithium. I don't know if any of them would work, but you're in a very dynamic uh, technology that's changing every two years rather substantially. So what makes you think that lithium batteries is a good investment strategy for uh, the energy development area uh, going forward?
3: Um, So I would like to um, clarify that I do not think that uh, India should be specifically aiming at lithium-ion batteries and trying to position itself uh, to catch up in existing chemistries, because as you very rightly pointed out, it is a highly dynamic environment. Lithium-ion batteries today are uh, very different from what they looked like 15 years ago, and who knows what they might look like 15 years from now. So in terms of their chemistries, form factors, you will see probably a lot of evolution in the space. Um, regarding the question of whether it would make sense to just buy them from abroad, yes, I totally agree. Particularly, you see that even more with solar PV, where right now you see a lot of um, efforts to set up um, custom duties uh, and uh to uh, have protectionism for domestic manufacturers, where often, not only in India, in several countries around the world, the only effect that has is to make solar PV just more expensive locally and does nothing for local manufacturing or innovation or cost reductions or uh, job creation. So the broader question, rather than... Uh, focusing solely on specific technologies and trying to have local product, uh, production, uh, and going along with this uh, narrative that seems to be uh, quite popular globally right now of self reliance, or in India, Atmanirbharta, of not relying on external um, imports but uh, looking inward and having um, a narrow view of domestic industrial policy. Uh, The question that needs to be addressed is how does India organize itself in the longer term to be ready for the next opportunity that comes up when it comes to energy technologies? So I totally agree with you that India has missed the boat on the current generation of lithium-ion cells. I think not even Japan and South Korea who have probably a 30-year head start because that's where all the cells for even our laptops and phones came from even before they were Uh, deployed in electric vehicles. Um, China and U.S. are also and increasingly now Europe are way ahead of India because they've been thinking about these questions for more than a decade. Uh, Investing in R&D, investing in uh, human resources um, and infrastructure to set up an ecosystem for innovation and manufacturing. Uh, But the key question for India now is how does India orient itself for the future, not for Uh, technologies that are here right now.
0: Okay, Uh, Narasimha, you want to add to that at
1: all? Um, I I totally agree. I just wanted to point out uh, the international dimension here. You know, if you see the story of solar, uh, a lot of the demand was created in Europe, like with including the Germany's million roofs program, and India wanted to be a global solar manufacturing leader. China won that race, <laughs> and, and we've ended up benefiting from the spillover of that. And I think we just have to recognize where we can be a market leader and where we have to be a market follower. And certainly batteries is where we have to be, I think, a follower. And uh, there has to be the lead taken in other countries to develop scale and some of these essential technologies that are needed everywhere. And I think we have to ride on that. A key area that may require local, uh, a lot of local innovation and development is on the smart grids and you know the specific conditions in India of, of the grid, of of the resources, and, and how to best integrate them requires a lot of context-specific knowledge and R&D. And I think that's, that's, a, that's an area we need to focus on domestically.
0: Well, let me change, ask uh, uh, Mahua uh, a different question. Uh, I've got about four questions that have come across my, uh, from the Q&A here, all focusing on distribution uh, energy, energy at a decentralized scale from rooftop solar to distributive energy systems uh, and to say that that could be an alternative in many areas uh, to the heavy focus on centralized energy systems. Uh, How would you respond to those questions?
2: 100% absolutely agree um, Henry 100%. I'd go one step further and say you know the current understanding of decentralized energy is that you're completely away from the grid and you've got your little mini grid going on there that's not necessarily the only gen, uh, the only um, option certainly not for India the, uh, the, there's a there's a happy medium in between where you're where basically we're, you're putting up solar panels right close to their point of use and except that you're generating that power to the grid, And by doing so, halving what the grid pays for, would have otherwise paid for that feeder, or halving what the grid otherwise would pay for even agricultural power. By the time you get down to the last feeder, it's usually in a remote village in states where the feeders have been separated for agriculture versus non-agriculture. Given that ag power is free, the load on the distribution company is massive. So even at that level, I'd be able to set up a decentralized system Except that I'd only be servicing to the grid. Now, if there was some other feeder that was not separated, I'd still come in with solar power and still have the cost of, uh, of supply and still look have localized generation with minimal losses. And if it were if we were able to be creative, even put in energy efficient appliances and green future demand, because I'd be able to be close to the demand center. So decentralized suddenly takes on a whole new meaning. I'm still using the grid, except that the panels and the points of usage are right there. So it's decentralized in that sense. Absolutely. So I like that question, it's fantastic. Just that we should spend the effort to articulate that the only model for decentralized solar is not completely off the grid. Because from an investor point of view, or even an operator point of view, it's very difficult to scale those things. It's very difficult to expand your mini grid into many, 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 many mini grids. It's very difficult to have isolated solar home systems, and scale them. It's very difficult to have lithium ion and produce them at an affordable price for individual solarized home systems. Although it is still being done, but the cost of capital makes it quite quite a challenge to scale that. The cost of overheads becomes very high. It's almost 25% today. So, yes, decentralized, but a slightly different model.
0: How important is finance to all of this? Because, you know, you've talked about all of the these technologies. We've talked about uh, people buying EVs. Uh, we've talked about, and you've just mentioned that instead of stepping down power, you are got to move power in the other direction, which means that you're going to have to replace a lot of the transformers uh, in the, in the grid system. Uh, so, uh, there's a lot of money that's going to have to come up here. Uh, where's the money going to come from for all of these, uh, emerging new to energy technologies and for, uh, uh moving or transitioning, uh, to a less uh, fossil fuel intensive energy system who pays for this? Um, Narsimha, you-
1: Yeah. I mean, this is the other elephant in the room here. You know, affordability. I mean, you know, the average income of the Indians is one tenth of that of the US, but most people barely consume any electricity. They cannot, I can't imagine them affording any kind of electric vehicle or two wheeler any, you know, anytime soon. Uh, so, yeah, I, like I said, I think these technologies have to have a global market and have scale achieved such that they become more affordable. That's one thing. Um, I think the utility finances are also important here. I, you know, on, on the decentralization as well we have to keep in mind that in the last 20 years in in India, in the electricity sector, we've had this situation where sort of the revenue-generating customers leave the grid because the grid is in such poor shape and such as high costs and losses. And we had people moving to captive power. And there's a risk that we have potentially wealthier customers who leave the grid to have their own PV production, uh, who can afford it, and the utility is saddled with serving poor customers with poor uh, systems and not having the capacity to, uh, to serve them very well. So there is a little bit of that um, uh, issue. Uh, and, and so it has to be an inclusive process. And I do think uh, the government can provide financing. I mean, of course they can, but this is a broader uh, issue of making these technologies a lot more affordable than they are, uh, than they are today uh, for the consumer.
0: Abhishek, you want to add to either of those last two comments, either on distributed energy or uh, on carbon finance?
3: I missed a little bit of what Mawa said. I dropped off for a bit, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating uh, what she might have said. But uh, particularly, uh, in my opinion, particularly for mature technologies, uh, financing is not such a big issue in India at the moment. There's plenty of finance going around, large institutional investors who are looking for projects. So uh, for large utility scale renewables, it's the pipeline of projects that's the issue right now, not the availability of finance. The big challenges moving forward in terms of finance, um, at least the two biggest ones in my mind are, one is in consumer finance. So um, for example, in the e-mobility space, India is one of the largest markets for two and three wheelers, And these customers are highly price sensitive. Uh, And for electric two-wheelers, even though the lifetime cost of ownership might be lower in the future as battery costs come down, the upfront cost is much higher. So uh, in-consumer finance plays a big role. And there's a lot of space for innovation there, working on uh, leasing models, third-party ownership, models where you pull the scooter but not the battery, uh, technical innovation related to battery swapping, for example. So in-consumer finance is one issue. The other is early-stage financing for, uh, if not first in, to the world, in, uh, innovations, um, at least to first to in the context uh, innovations. So for new untested technologies, uh, grid-scale battery storage, for example, which is quite mature in other parts of the world, uh, there is not a lot of maturity in the financial sector to um provide financing for these first few projects, uh, which can catalyze further investments in uh, the sector. So I think those are two issues that need to be addressed.
0: Okay, uh, one more uh, uh, question before I ask uh, everybody to sum up. Um, and um, and I'm gonna ask uh, um the Glasgow conference, it's COP, which is uh, sort of uh, been sort of pending now for over a year. It's going to take place in November. A lot of people are pushing India to pledge to accept a pledge of uh, 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 net zero carbon emissions by 2060 uh, or a date similar to China. Um, do you think India should do that?
1: And given all that we've said, you know, it, it's uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any value. I think there's if there is any value in those sorts of pledges, it's really in diplomacy. I mean, this is, there's a lot of, uh, you know, in the, in the international negotiating space, what happens in the back rooms, um, uh, there, are, there is pressure that's put on, on, on the developing country governments. And, you know, a lot of these are aspirational. They don't have much value except in diplomacy. Uh, I think on the ground, it does, really doesn't make any, it's mind boggling to me to think about net zero by 2050. It really depends a lot on what happens in the rest of the world. And so, yeah, I think it can be talked about, but it has to really be in tandem, you know, with conversations about, well, depends on what's happening in the marketplace, conditional on technologies achieving scale, batteries becoming commercially viable. Under those conditions, certainly, I think a conditional pledge uh, or aspiration could potentially meet the diplomatic interests, uh, but also make clear that those ambitious targets would require a lot of... um, uh, support internationally, but you know the political economy around uh, some of the issues we've talked about—the employment, the coal sector—those transitional issues are extremely critical and, and and need to be sorted out for those uh, any kind of serious transition to uh, to net zero, or or you have to develop uh, you know carbon sequestration at a scale to make that commercially viable, which today is a little bit fictitious already. Uh, but that would need to happen if we're going to continue the thermal dependence as we see is very likely to be the case. I mean, I've looked at scenarios, global scenarios of, of zero carbon in the future, and most of them have continued coal deployment in the South Asia. It's just a reality, and you just need to have you know CCS or some other way of extracting a, a, a direct capture of some kind, which brings up again, the affordability and technology cooperation issues.
0: Okay, thank you all. Um, We have uh, approximately five minutes. So uh, that means one and a half minutes for each of you. If you were to sum up uh, all of the conversations we've had this morning or this evening, depending on where you are, uh, and look at India's future energy destiny, uh, where is it going to go in the next 25 years? And let me start with Abhishek.
3: That's a difficult question. Hopefully it will move in the right direction, but uh, just based on the discussion, it is quite clear that the way is not going to be easy. Um, A lot of short-term issues need to be resolved, issues related to finance, issues related to um, the reforms in the power sector. Um, In the medium term, some of the things we need to think about are how do we ensure that uh, the uh, transition does not leave behind some of the poorest and most vulnerable parts of society. Uh, how do we leverage these technologies to also benefit um, rural um, agricultural consumers, uh, for example, as Mahua mentioned, and how do we uh, think about transitioning people whose livelihoods are dependent on um, the current technologies that are there in the power sector, how do we transition them away? And in the longer term, for deep decarbonization, I think a key issue is still, uh, as you rightly mentioned, Henry, uh, about uh, flexibility. We do not right now have an, a clear idea of what flexibility levers might enable high penetration of renewables in the future. Because uh, We do not have a lot of gas. Uh, Storage might be an option, but that remains to be seen. Other options that have been available to other countries, such as pumped hydro or gas, do not seem to be uh, viable uh, now or in the near future. So that remains a big question mark in the longer term.
0: Okay. Um, Mahua, you got 90 seconds.
2: Oh, great. I'm very very bullish. Very bullish, Henry. You gave me 25 years. 25 years. Absolutely. Completely. It'll, it's going to be renewables. We'll have overcome all these problems. We'll have dealt with all all of this. will have been noise. And no, I think 25 years is enough. I think you've given, given a very long runway. I'm not half as generous when I talk to my government colleagues. Um, I tell them I want all of this done before I retire and I will be retiring before 25 years. So very, very bullish. Yes, I think so. I think... Uh, we will india will have sorted out most of its of these problems of course there'll be other other issues but i think a majority of these integration problems blah 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 will have been sorted
1: okay narashima yeah i think i will be optimistic as well i mean notwithstanding all these challenges i do think there's significant potential that's not being tapped <laughs> uh, and that's because of the political economy but you know I've been pleasantly surprised by the by the extent of the changes in the power sector in the last decade, and I think that can really accelerate a lot. Um, but I do want to emphasize, you know I touched on a little bit in my talk, but I think the real opportunity lies, and I've found in my research too, that in focusing on more equitable development, uh, it can have actually a significant uh, disciplining effect on on demand growth, emissions growth, but also really serve the needs of the people. You're seeing that. You know, public transport is so much more energy intensive and really focuses on low-income people. If we focus our efforts on really ramping up public transport rather than electric SUVs, if we focus on, you know, grains and, and sustainable, you know, food production and housing, these are the, some of the key, health and education. These are areas where you don't doesn't cost a lot of energy and emissions. So if we direct our development efforts in the areas we really need and and really fix housing and public transport and food. I think, and then at the same time, if we keep going with the grid decarbonization the way we are, I think we can get pretty far. All right, thank you.
0: And it's a good note to to end on. I wanna thank all of the panelists for a a terrific uh, 75 minutes. And I wanna thank again the sponsors, uh, the Mattel Institute, the Harvard Center for the Environment, uh, the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements and the NRP, Uh, for um, a terrific uh, um, uh, presentation and I've learned a lot and I want to again thank everybody uh, uh, for uh, participating and
3: thank you all and I hope you have a good day.
1: Thank you.